Welcome to Confabulation, the podcast. I'm Matt Goldberg, and these are stories, true as we can tell them. In the Hello and welcome back to Confabulation. I'm Matt Goldberg. And I'm Deb Van Slett. Welcome to another show. And we've got a special episode for you today. We are joined by Francesca Esquera. Francesca is a producer at Confabulation. She's a storyteller here in Montreal. Hey, Francesca. Hi. It's good to be here. We are very happy to have you. One of the things we wanted to do with this podcast is to kind of peel back the layer uh, to show people what the show is like and the people that work on this show who make Confabulation what it is and you're one of those people i am i'm one of those people so what first drew you to get involved with confabulation and storytelling so my friend saw a poster for the show and brought me and we didn't know much about it and i came in and it was honestly like the most cliched oh my god this is what i'm supposed to do i've been telling stories to my friends like since I can remember. So how do you take that ability to tell these anecdotes? How does that bend into what you're doing now with storytelling? How, how do you find a story? I mean, it usually ends up being the things that the things that stick with me that I still can't stop thinking about. And then I'll find myself recounting them to friends. And then, and then oh, they laughed at this moment. And they didn't laugh at this moment. So I could change that up a bit. And so normally, like... By the time I'm actually writing a story to perform it, I've already told it a few times and I get a sense of of where the story is and then and then sitting down and actually writing it is like, okay, it's building off of my experience telling the story already. How do I make this even better? Do you want to talk about this story that we're going to hear? This is my first story. And the first time I ever told the story was actually, this was not my first performance of the story. The first time I told the story was in my grade nine English class, the last day before Christmas break, because we were doing like a little, you know, when you do like a class party before the break. And so people had their guitar and were doing little skits and I didn't have anything prepared, but I was like, you know what, I'm going to just gonna tell this fun story so I did and then it went really well and so every every class I had that day I told the story and it just got like better and better or I don't know better but it just got uh more elaborate so I actually first told the story in like 2009 and then when I told it on stage um oh so fun it was so great to actually have the story that I have been I guess like harboring for years and my family knows the story it's part of our like family mythology and then to finally share it and have other people enjoy it and also relate to it it was really it was really like I guess rewarding no no not rewarding uh no satisfying magical transformative hmm it kind of felt like I arrived in a place that I knew I had to be at so let's hear the story. It's from the show Eye of the Storm as part of the Wildside Festival, January 2018. That was recorded at the Centaur Theater. Sweet. Okay. <laughs> so when my dad left my mom, she did what I imagine most women would do if the father of their four-year-old wanted to live with a woman named Tammy. She cried a lot. And for a time, she went to live with her mother, 
my grandmama in a magical place called Lac du Cerf. I, on the other hand, was to remain in the care of my father and company at Sister Chaumont, Gatineau, Quebec, Canada, etc. The point is, there are two hours and what feels like a thousand lakes between where I am at my dad's and where my mom is. Every second weekend, my dad drives me to Lac du Cerf. And my favorite part of the journey is the ferry we have to take. Picture this. We are in a car. The car is on a boat. The boat is on water. I don't think you understand me here, so I'm going to do this again. We are in a car. We're in a vehicle on a boat, which is like kind of another vehicle moving from one landmass to another. It's madness. My least favorite part of the journey is when we get there and Dad stays in the car while Kamama gets my bags out of the trunk. Things are different. My mom used to spend her days painting murals in my room, flowers and fairies and all the things that little girls are supposed to like sprawled across my walls as if a dream had exploded in there. Now she stays in her room and her freckles, which I just wasn't lucky enough to inherit, are permanently blurred by tear stains. Her eyes, which I would say are green, but she would say are hazel, are now red and puffy, and when they do look at me, they seem to say that this is my fault. But on Sundays, I forget all about it. I forget the weekend of tiptoeing around, of silently waiting at my mom's doorstep while she speaks to Kamama or God or whoever it is that gives her the consolation that I can't. And you want to know how I forget? presence, baby. Because every Sunday when I go back to my dad's house, I am welcomed home by a giant pile of glorious presents! <laughs> Dolls, stuffed animals, and my absolute favorite Ashley and Mary-Kate Olsen movies. They have this theme song for their party series where they're wearing like matching overalls and the matching hat and they're like doing this. <laughs> point is, with Ashley and Mary-Kate by my side, everything that's going on with my parents just seems so far away. Cuddled up to my new dolly, it doesn't matter that Tammy is tucking me into bed at night and that my real mom is somewhere else, puffy-eyed and suffering. But this phenomenon, the joy of stuff, it gives me an idea. Mom just needs her own presence and like me, she won't cry anymore. But I need something better than Ashley and Mary-Kate Olsen movies. I need to give her the thing she wants the most in the whole wide world. So the next time I'm in Lac du Cerf, I have a plan. I'm going to need some help. I'm going to need to speak to the woman of the house. Now, there are some things you need to know about my grandmama. She says she built her house with her four brothers and their bare hands. She says she's going to live forever. She says that babies come from soup cans. <laughs> you do not question the things that Kamama says. She barks, Hamilton, soupé, at my grandfather, or only slightly more softly at my mother. Mais Annie, pourquoi tu pleures ta fille ici à votre voir? She also, how do I put this, has very large breasts that she uses as a second purse. Anything you need to clean up a mess or cure a headache can be found in the depths of my grandmama's bosom. 
Tylenol, Kleenex, you name it, she just adjusts, rummages around, and procures just the thing. So I know she is my go-to in my newfound mission. Come, Mama, I ask while Mom is taking an all-day kind of nap. Come, Mama, what is one thing that Mommy has always wanted? And I'm expecting her to say bicycle because all the older kids get bicycles and they seem pretty happy with them. And yeah, it occurs to me that I might not be able to bankroll this operation on my own, but like, Kamama sniffs the air like she can smell the answer, looks me straight in the eye and says, a penis. <laughs> okay, so I know what that is, I think, but I do not know what this means, when I muster up some courage, I ask her, Mom, have you ever tried to pee like a boy? (laughs) And she does not question my curiosity in this moment. Without so much as lifting an eyebrow, she says, yeah, but I didn't like it very much. (laughs) Bingo, mystery solved. Mom wants a penis so she can pee standing up. Of course, that's like the one thing that boys can do that girls can't do. That's like the one source of imbalance in the silly little battle of the sexes. Obviously, obviously that's what she wants. But this leaves me with a bigger problem. How do I give my mom a penis? And luckily, penis or not, things start to look up. Dad helps mom move into a house much closer to ours so that spending the weekend with her is as simple as taking a different school bus home. I learn a new word, manic depression. It means that for mom, some days are going to be good days and some days are going to be bad days. Can you guess which kind of days I liked best? I try to time it so that I'm only with her on the day she wants to bake triple-tiered Valentine's Day cakes in July or throw out all the light bulbs in her house and hang Christmas lights from our ceiling so it's like we have our very own technicolored constellation. My friends tell me my mom's cool because she's not like a mom mom. I don't tell them that I feel like the mom. I don't tell them about all the different medicines she has to take and what happens when she sometimes doesn't take them. I do not tell them about the bad days like the time she told me what all my Christmas presents were and returned them when I said I wanted to spend Christmas with my dad's family. Or like the time I burnt toast and she chased me into my room with a butter knife. You know, bad days. (laughs) It's on one of these bad days. Mom's crying and speaking to Kamama on the phone and then hanging up on her and crying some more and calling her right back that I decide it's finally time to get to the bottom of this. I'm tired of not knowing how to help my mom. Exasperated, I blurt out, Mom, why do you want a penis so badly? And as if the words suck her face dry, she straightens up and out comes a waterfall of questions. Where did you learn that word? What makes you think I want a grandmama? And then it hits her, kamama. What do we know about kamama aside from her ever questionable wisdom and seemingly bottomless bosom? A penis. A penis. Happiness. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm disappointed at having been tricked yet again by Kamama's ethereal wisdom. <laughs> but mom is looking at me like she can actually see me, and she lets out a long overdue laugh. It would be great if that's how it ended, if the joke fixed everything and turned us into the kind of family you see on sitcoms. But to tell you the truth, there are still good days and bad days. I wish we could share shoes. I wish we could share secrets. I wish more than anything that I could procure remedies for my bosom. <laughs> but you know what? On the other hand, not every girl can say they share a penis with their mother. How does it feel to re-listen to that story, to any of your stories? Normally it's painful. <laughs> but listening to this story in particular, like, I mean, there's so many things that I have yet to learn as a storyteller that I'm so excited to to learn and to, and to ways that I want to better myself as a performer. But honestly, it's not bad. It's not bad for a first-time story. Like, I could really give myself a pat on the back for this one. <laughs> Francesca, as a producer on the show now, how has that changed the way that you hear stories? I mean, when I'm in public, I hear stories differently because I can't help but be like producing the story. But when I'm at the show, I just really try to enjoy it because I know that the storytellers have put hard work into it. I've put hard work into into helping them craft their story. So I just kind of want to sit back and feel like a kid again, like I'm listening to story. I love when I can really feel like I'm with that person going through whatever they're going through. Uh, like when they really bring us into their world. That's exactly what I love about storytelling. And then one thing I really love, especially about the story that we're going to listen to now, is like I'm a very expressive person and I'm a very chaotic speaker usually. <laughs> um speaking with my hands with my whole body and and sometimes with our storytellers when I first started coming to the show like everyone is so they're like professional they're calm they're not frantic in the way that I'm frantic and this story is exactly what I love it's it's frantic it's he's all over the place tell us what's the story you brought for us today this is Paul Van Dyke's story Paul Van Dyke is a Canadian performer actor playwright and he first told this story at the mainline theater in June 2019 the theme was summertime well it's finally summer and my girlfriend Catherine and I borrow her parents car and pack it with camping gear along with her little dog Arthur and head north. We drive all afternoon and stop to camp near the lovely Village de la Belle along the beautiful Riviere Rouge. We found a secluded site at the far end of the campground where the land tapered off between a cliff face and the river. Uh, Catherine instructed me to set the tent up while she went to clean up the grill for dinner. And as she walked away, she shouted back, keep an eye on Arthur. (laughs) Arthur is a little gray shih tzu with a ridiculous underbite and a friendly disposition. I'd always been a cat person, but Arthur and Catherine were the package deal, so I learned to appreciate the dog. And over time, he and I developed our own special bond. I opened the car door to let him out, and he immediately began hopping around the campsite with glee. I went around to get the tent out and turned back, and Arthur was gone. Arthur, I called, nothing, Arthur. The cliff face was a 90 degree angle going straight up. 
up. He, there's no way he could climb it. So either he's exploring the campground, or I looked at the fast-flowing river. I went to the next campsite. Did you see a dog come by here? No? The next one. Did you see a little gray dog run past? No? Okay. So if he didn't come this way, then he must have fallen in. At that point, Catherine returned. Where's my dog? I I looked at her helplessly. Where's my fucking dog? I stammered. He, oh, you know, I went to get the tent. I turned around and he was gone. What? Yeah, he, uh... He might have fallen in the river. And then came, well, then why the fuck are you not in the river looking for him? And I was pretty sure the whole campground heard that. And then they heard, I love that dog more than I will ever love you. (laughs) Okay. So I stripped down to my boxer briefs, went to the end of the campsite, and waded in. And the water was warm, like really warm. I made my way through a little marshy area and plunged into the free-flowing current. Within moments, I was shooting down the river and around the bend and out of sight of the campground. I realized that if this dog really did fall in, I've got some serious catching up to do. I also realized that if I didn't come back with him, my relationship with Catherine was over. So I began to swim as fast as I could, but even with this incredible current helping me, I still thought I wasn't moving fast enough to catch the dog. So I cut over to the shore and got out at a farmer's field and began sprinting barefoot through the field, the whole time keeping my eyes on the water and screaming, Arthur! Before I knew it, I was through one farmer's field and into another, hurtling over barbed wire fences. By the time I got to the third fence, one of the little rusty metal barbs caught the taint of my underwear and ripped a huge hole out of the crotch of my underwear. I kept running, just being a little more cautious as I hopped over the fences as now there was nothing between the barbed wire and my manhood. The farmland came to an abrupt end at a massive ditch with a forest on the other side, so I scrambled back down the bank and into the river. And I swam, and I swam, and I swam, and my voice became hoarse from screaming that little dog's name, Arthur. And then I stopped, and I realized I'm not going to find him. And I looked up, and the sun was setting, and, and it turned the whole sky into this spectacular fuchsia dome. And there was already a crescent moon high above, bathing in this glorious light. And even though I'd stopped swimming, the river kept carrying me so fast, but so calm and so warm, it felt luxurious on my skin. And I thought, what if I didn't go back? What if I just let this river carry me forever? And then I heard a splash upriver, and I saw something, something swimming, something furry. Arthur! There's another splash, and he went under. I tried to swim towards him, but the current was so strong, it took everything just to swim in one place. So I got closer to the shore, and using a bunch of fallen branches and trees, I pulled myself to where he went under. Arthur! I called again, but he was nowhere in sight. And then I heard a sound, a kind of chattering sound. And I noticed the branch I was holding on to was part of a huge pile of branches, or more like a dome of branches. And all these dome branches were chewed off at the end, and this chattering sound was coming from inside the dome. And then, of course, I realized I'm holding on to a beaver lodge. And that furry animal I saw wasn't Arthur, it was a beaver. And then I remembered learning somewhere in beavers or cubs or one of these cult-like institutes we force our children into that beavers have a secret underwater entrance to their home. And they have 
teeth that never stop growing and they bite through trees and here I am holding onto their house screaming my lungs out with a big fucking hole in my underwear and my junk wiggling around in the water like a goddamn worm on a hook. I scrambled out of the water as fast as I could which meant crawling onto the beaver lodge. The chattering within intensified as I gingerly crawled across it and onto the shore. That beaver was my last hope. Arthur was gone, and it was time to face the music. Swimming back was impossible with the current, and at this point along the river was a pine forest that was so dense I had to get on my belly and kind of squirm along the forest floor to get through it. The rocks and pine needles scratching my wet naked torso along the way. Filthy and bloody, I popped out the other end in another farmer's field. I followed its perimeter to this little tin roof shack that was covered with like a hundred little fleur-de-lis flags. And sitting out front was the farmer, wearing a baseball cap with a fleur-de-lis on it, smoking a cigarette and drinking a little bat blue. I must have been quite a sight, but he did not seem surprised to see me when I started babbling away in broken French, excusez-moi, monsieur, j'ai perdu mon petit chien, je pense qu'il est tombé dans la rivière et je pense qu'il est mort. At that point, tears began flowing down my cheeks. The farmer put out his cigarette and shook his head. No. Mais j'ai quelques chatons. Voulez-vous un petit chaton? A kitten? No. Merci. Je ne besoin pas un chaton. He asked me where I'd come from, and I said the campground up the river. I inquired if there was a road I could walk back on, and he said that he would drive me as the campground was over 10 kilometers away. I asked him the time to find out I'd been gone for over two hours. As we drove back along the dirt road in his pickup truck, a police car shot by in the opposite direction. And then I saw another cop talking to some people at their house by the river, and I thought, could they be looking for Arthur too? <laughs> we pulled up to the entrance of the campground. Bonjour, said the farmer. And I immediately became self-conscious of my appearance. I, I, I covered my crotch and quickly made my way through the campground, hoping nobody would notice me, which wasn't hard because the whole place was abandoned until these three women came up the path towards me. Are you Paul? Uh, yeah, the police are looking for you. They thought you drowned. Oh, okay, thank you. I went around the washroom to our campsite to find the place packed with cop cars and over a hundred people, including rescue workers and all the curious campers watching Zodiacs being launched into the river and shooting off downstream. I went to a cop car that had an officer in the front seat. Uh, excuse me, I think you might be looking for me. The officer turned to me. Are you Paul? <laughs> yeah. And then he sighed, like he was disappointed. <laughs> but not because I was alive and well, but because he wanted to rescue me. They all did. They, this was a big deal for them. They were having a great time with their boats and their walkie-talkies. And... <sighs> anyway, he got on his CB and said, hey, il est là, il vient bien. Merci. And I find my girlfriend, she was sitting at a picnic table with a blanket over her shoulder. She was sobbing with a crowd of women around her. 
I approached her and she immediately looked up, threw off the blanket, ran towards me, wrapped her arms around me. I felt her tears pouring down my shoulder. And then everybody began applauding and cheering. And it was like this scene out of an end of a movie where the credits are just about to roll. But wait, Arthur, I whispered in her ear, I couldn't find him. He's okay, she said. I found him 30 seconds after he went in the river. She, she pointed to a spot just up from where I went in. If you'd gone in a bit further up, you would have found him there. Little shit. Now he was safe in the car. The boats came in and the crowds dispersed. I cleaned myself up and put on some clothes. Catherine opened a bottle of wine and lit a fire and we ate dinner under the stars. Aww. Arthur stayed in the car. That's it for another episode of Confabulation, the podcast. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Francesca, for coming in today. You're so welcome. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Confabulation. We're a nonprofit dedicated to the art of true life storytelling. We run monthly autobiographical storytelling shows in Montreal, Toronto, and Victoria. You can learn more about the show and sign up for our mailing list at confabulation.ca or check us out on social media where we're at Confab Stories. Confabulation, the podcast, is produced by our team, Dev Van Slet, Stephen Trepanier, and me, Matt Goldberg. Special thanks to the Conseil des Arts de Montréal for their support of Confabulation. We couldn't do it without you.